Hello and welcome to episode 136 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. Ben, what's the latest? What is the latest? Well, I'll tell you this. The uh, grass is now growing in our backyard, Mm. so it's a new job that's been put on the list. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm assuming you've got the boys mowing the yes, lawn. Yes, uh, that, okay. that is helpful, but um, it won't happen without a little encouragement. So it's one more thing to keep in mind now. But hey, it's good. Um, spring is here. Do you give them like, you pay them for tasks? Do you I give them an know. allowance? It's all or? mixed up in gray. We need to figure out how to make a clear, bright line rule between what are expected tasks and what are paid tasks. And... um. It's all very messy. You know, personally, I would just say everything is unpaid since uh, they have free room and board, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. we get, <laughs> sometimes they get in arguments with their brothers about, you know, whose thing is this thing and is it my thing or is it his thing? And sometimes that when I get fed up, I'm just like, look, dude, it's ultimately my thing. <laughs> So <laughs> at some point you can trace the purchase back to me. So I will just take this and um, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Um, today on the show, we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff, answering emails as normal. But uh, we have a PSA to put out about how the LSAC is not going to give refunds um, for June people who are also taking it or who, who, uh, well, we'll talk about the refund issue. We have an email from a listener with some information about public interest loan forgiveness, um, student loan forgiveness for public interest. We'll talk about, uh, whether people actually end up getting those loans forgiven or not. Um, an email from a listener who writes in to ask if, if there is such a thing as a maximum score, she feels like she's tapped out at a certain number. So we'll dive into that a little bit. Um, and then we have an email with some more about the uh, coming apocalypse, as we've called it, the problem with the accommodations on the LSAT. And of course, we'll talk about whatever other stuff we get to. Anything else that you want to add to the top of the show, oh, Ben? This is great. Okay. Normal, regular updates. Uh, you can email the show anytime, help at thinkinglsat.com. Please try to keep those emails short and sweet if you can. Um, you know, Let us know what the question is <laughs> so that we can get to that <laughs> efficiently, yeah. please. Um, walls of text are generally not preferred. Um, we have 358 members now in our Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook, which is amazing. So please uh, go to Facebook and find us and uh, join that group if you like. People are meeting up for uh, study groups and all sorts of interesting uh, stuff is happening on the Facebook group. So check in there. And Ben and I don't dominate over there. So it's that's definitely like listener driven. So uh, go check that out. Yeah, I'm on it right now. And apparently um, Ann Ma tells us, I love Nathan and Ben, but every time they say anyways, I cringe. I guess we got to work on that. Got to say anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hmm, I don't know. Maybe that listener would also cringe on anyway, since it's just filler and you're not really That's saying right. anything. Or like, or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have 11 patrons, patrons. We have 11 patrons on Patreon. It's so funny you say and it they're that now way. Donating. That's how I say it. <laughs> I like calling them patrons. <laughs> um, patrons are donating $92 total every month right now helping us to keep the lights on here at the Thinking LSAT podcast. We really appreciate that. Um, if you want to know more about anything that I am doing or Ben is doing, you can go to Ben's website. That's strategyprep.com. He offers classes in Washington, D.C., live tutoring, online tutoring, online classes, a whole bunch of stuff. That's at strategyprep.com. And same deal for me. Uh, I have classes in San Francisco, classes in Los Angeles, and uh, a big online program and tutoring and stuff. You can learn all about that at foxlsat.com. Sorry for the commercial, but uh, it is surprising how many listeners have no idea that we're actually in the LSAT business. They think we're just two random dudes talking about the LSAT. <laughs> then. Let's get together and chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so this first note here. Uh, was from one of my former students uh, who just gave me an update. He called the LSAC uh, and found out that they are not going to refund testers who sign up for both June and July, but then they like their June score and decide to cancel their July registration. They're not going to give refunds for that July registration. Okay. Which I thought they, <clears throat> I thought they might, because I, I remembered them doing something like that, not too long. Yeah, ago, it was like a December they were, test. Um, I think maybe it was something with the, how the December and February tests are close together, or I guess it's also the October and December tests were close together, mm-hmm. and they were doing something where it was like you could register for the future test, but then. If you're if you're taking the current test and you keep your score and you like and, and you decide not to take the subsequent registration, you could get a hmm. refund. Um, but they have decided not to do that. So if you're uh, not sure or if you think you're going to knock it out of the park in June, um, I don't know. I guess it's up to you whether you want to pay one hundred and eighty dollars for an option to take the test in July. Yeah. What's your take on that? Generally, I would say you should probably do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the deadline is for the July registration, but it's probably right around, it's going to be before the June scores come out, most likely. Mm-hmm. We could look that up. You want to look? Should we, we look should. that up? Let's give it to them. July LSAT 2018. Let's see here. Okay. So the registration deadline for the July LSAT this year is June 13th. And. Oh, so it's it's not even close then. I mean, the 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 June test is two days before. No, wait, what what is it? Yeah, uh, this year. Yeah, yeah June eleventh. Yep. So unless yeah. okay. <laughs> a miracle happens, <laughs> <laughs> scores on the LSAT normally take three weeks to come back. Um, recently, they've shocked the world by coming out with scores early. What was the last one? Maybe it was like two weeks. Wait, it wasn't that early, was it? It was pretty early. The February scores came out surprisingly early, mm. I thought. Yeah, I don't remember how early they were. I thought it was just a few days, but anyway. Yeah. Anyhow, we can and we can uh anticipate that it's gonna be 
three weeks. That's been their historical average. Maybe it'll be slightly shorter than that. But anyway, you're not going to be able to sign up for the July test after June scores are out. So you're going to have to sign up for that in the dark. I guess you can take the test and see how it feels. And if you feel like, you know, if you know you nailed it, then you don't need to register. I mean, it's tough. Um, If you can swing the $180, though, I would say do it because even just a couple points could mean way more than $180. So it seems worth it. Yeah, this is a pretty clear example of how the odds are kind of stacked against poor people. Mm. Because I do routinely recommend to my you know wealthier students to just go ahead and sign up for tests just to give yourself an option on taking yeah. it. Like right now, I have students who you know they might not be ready for June, but that doesn't matter because the hundred eighty dollars isn't anything to them, and so they've already registered for the June exam. Yeah, maybe and the July exam. Yeah. And they just have that sitting there ready for them if they want the option of taking it. Mm-hmm. It's a very sensible strategy for people who have enough resources to pay. Well, you know, they're paying <clears throat> thousands of dollars for private one on one LSAT tutoring. Then what's $180 for them to give themselves a, an option to take the test? Yeah. I said, I guess we should put out another PSA. I mean, if for new listeners, they don't know about the LSAC fee waiver, you really ought to try to get the LSAC fee waiver if you can, right? If you're mm-hmm. sitting there cringing about the $180 to sign up for the test, well, maybe you might be able to qualify for the LSAC fee waiver. If you get that, you get two free shots at the test plus a bunch of other free stuff. Mm-hmm. So definitely go to the LSAC website and apply for that fee waiver if you can. Yeah. Okay. So thanks Darius for uh, calling the LSAC and confirming that they're not going to uh, give refunds in that situation. A little unfriendly of them, I would say. Yeah. doesn't seem too hard. seems like it would be a good policy for them to say, if you take the June test, you know, if you actually sit for it and get a score, mm-hmm. And now you don't need to take the July test. Seems like they could give a refund. Yeah. You've already, you're already a customer. You've already paid them $180 at least. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You want to take this next one? Sure. So this is uh, from a student of mine in my current class, Dan. Thanks, Dan, for sending this in. Subject, public student loan forgiveness. Hey, Ben. Dan here from your Tuesday night class. I thought your commentary on public student loan forgiveness, PSLF, on this week's pod was really interesting, and it made me think about some data I've been working with recently. Thought you might want to take a look and maybe even share it with the listeners. Having completely bought into the don't pay for law school mantra since starting your class and listening to the pod, it makes me queasy to hear other students seriously contemplating taking out ridiculous amounts of student loans when they don't have to. This is made even worse when they believe these loans will be forgiven when actual the actual chance of this happening is so slim. The data is from my a client of mine, Sally May, hold the criticism, and is titled How America Pays for Grad School. The full report can be found at that link, but I'm also attaching a snapshot of how the average law student is financing their education. Also find the point on PSLF 
public student loan forgiveness uh, below. So we have a picture here, which we'll include, obviously, in the show notes uh, on the website, thinkinglsat.com. Uh, this is what this is the part that he uh, took out of the report. Among the students who borrowed a federal loan in 2016 to 2017 to help pay for graduate school, half anticipate taking advantage of public service loan forgiveness on their federal loans after they finish uh, graduate school and meet eligibility guidelines. Wow, so half (laughs) think they'll be able to take advantage of that. That's pretty crazy. Students more likely to anticipate loan forgiveness are studying medicine, education, and social science. Students less likely to anticipate loan forgiveness are studying law, 39%, engineering, and MBA. Um, thanks for everything, Dan. Yeah, it's pretty crazy since most people don't end up getting to take advantage of that. But they think that they will be able to. What are the reasons why people don't end up getting taking uh, getting to take advantage of it? Well, I don't know the exact reasons, but I'm assuming they just don't meet the eligibility requirements. It's like signing a contract, um that you just don't realize is harder to satisfy than you anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. And we've run through a few of the reasons on the show why they don't end up qualifying, but it includes not working in public interest, making slightly too much money, marrying somebody who makes too much money. There are special programs at each of the schools, like these LRAP programs where they help you make your payments when you're working in public interest. Okay. Cause, cause you do for the, for the whole federal loan repayment thing, you have to make 10 years worth of qualifying payments. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those payments are too much mm-hmm. for people working in public interest mm-hmm. and they'll have a, but you have to make those payments or else you're not going to get the whole thing <laughs> ever forgiven. Yeah. Bit of a catch 22. So these school programs, these LRAP programs, Sometimes the school will say, oh, no problem, because we'll help you to make those payments for 10 years. But those programs uh, are, some of them are better and some of them are worse. Mm-hmm. Some of them are pretty brutally underfunded. And they can they can talk about that program, but <laughs> they're not actually promising you that money. You know, it's like every year you have to apply to participate in the LRAP program. Mm-hmm. And at a, at a top, top, top school, they probably have no problem funding that. But at a medium, you know, school, they have problems making those payments every year. Yeah. Is there anything in this uh, snapshot that we need to talk about? No, not necessarily. Although Ugh, I, there's some gross things on here. Yeah, this is so this snapshot is for law majors, law majors. That's weird. Um, yeah. But in any case, some interesting facts here, because a lot of people do ask about this. So how many people go to law school right after undergrad? 52% go within the year. Um, And then the rest go, you have, it looks like after that, you have 21% go between two and five years. The only reason I mention that is that a lot of times people are five years out of school and they're feeling like, no, it's too late to go to law school now or something. And it's kind of like, um, no, a lot of people do that. In fact, more than half have been out of school for more than a year. So, Yeah, 15% is more than five years. Mm-hmm. Um, 36% is more than two years. Yeah. So 
yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a, there are a solid chunk of people going within a year or two, but there's also a third of your class that'll have been out for at least two years and sometimes five or 10. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm cringing here at the, um, I'm happy about the 60% female, 40% male split. That's good. Why Um, why is that good? Oh, just, you know, women are still sort of trying to break through glass ceilings in lots of places. They're underrepresented in, you know, mayorships, for example, governorships, Congress, um, never had a woman president. And so to see 60% of, uh, to see 60% women in law school is, you know, stuffing the pipeline full of people who will be able to rectify those differences, hopefully down the road somewhere. Sure. I could, I'm also kind of looking at the negative side of this, the, the, the lack of more women getting ripped off. (laughs) Oh, what? there's definitely that. But also I think, I, I think I've read just this general trend in like men not going to higher education, just, um, more men living in basements of their parents general decline the male population here so well when law school is 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 concerned i don't think that that is actually going to lead to the basement in fact it's probably the reverse right if these people are going to be borrowing outrageous amounts of money for a jd that uh that very likely (laughs) causes you to live with (laughs) mom and dad yeah I mean, because I, I am cringing here with the 91% think grad school is an investment in their future. 87% think they're going to earn more money with their JD. Mm-hmm. 79% think that grad school is the new standard for any professional occupation, which just seems completely nonsensical to me. I mean, what about the entire tech industry? Yeah. Uh, I guess it depends how you're defining professional occupation, but um, the worst thing here is 51% going just for the intellectual and social experience. Well, wow. Well, if you're going for free, Hey, (laughs) yeah, but they're not though. (laughs) They're not because it says 88% are willing to borrow to attend grad school. Mm Mm-hmm. And it does say up here 60% of the money for school is coming from student borrowing. So, you know, this isn't just money sitting around. Wow, I'm pretty shocked that it's only 2% external contributions. So 18% is actually students paying for it themselves. Someone else borrowing? Why did they put that? Why did they put that there in the middle? But anyway, 0%. Zero, yeah. I don't know. They shouldn't have included it. It just was a zero. Mm-hmm. So it's, but it's sixty percent of the tuitions are coming from student loans. <laughs> and then I like how it says twenty percent grants and scholarships, as if that money isn't just coming from the student borrowing in the first place, right? I mean, the grants and scholarships, yeah, is that money is coming from the student borrowing and the student earnings. So actually, if you take that twenty percent out of this, it ends up being. Mm-hmm. You know, overwhelmingly people are paying for it with loans. I don't understand this. It says, so you quoted this already. You said grad school is an investment in my future. 91% of people think that. And then, and then 87% say I will earn more money with a grad degree. And this is 
32% believe the degree will accelerate their career. I guess they don't have, a lot of these people don't have a career that they're thinking of or something, but that seems like a more realistic number of <laughs> what's going to happen. Yeah, that could be. I, <laughs> it'll, accel- it'll accelerate my career. Yeah, I don't know. They gave them a list of statements and said, hey, do you agree with this or not? Mm-hmm. I would imagine with GMAT, MBA students, everyone would say, yes, this will accelerate yeah. my career. Because like a G, you know, MBA gives you a promotion um, or qualifies you for management training or whatever. Whereas a JD, if it's you're coming right out of college, yeah, yeah this will accelerate my career. I don't know. I don't have a career. Hey, here's a stat that backs up what we said before. It says 70% you know, have worked in the field of study. So 70% have worked in the law some way, shape, or form. So if you feel like you need to go get an internship or a paralegal job or something like that so that you can improve your application, um, here is the stat that says what you're doing is making yourself part of the majority, and that's not necessarily going to help your application. Yeah, you don't want to look just like everybody else. You're going to be boring if you have that legal internship. Um, and not that you shouldn't do it, but you just shouldn't do it because you think it makes your application look better. Yeah, exactly. You should do it to figure out whether you want to do this crazy right. journey. Right. <clears throat> um, okay. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. That was great. Yep. All right, next one. Um, hey, friends. I took the February LSAT and I scored five points below my average and did not improve from the last time I took the LSAT. I am just looking for a little advice. I took a test master's course and then studied heavily a few hours a day for the month leading up to the June 2016 LSAT. I was averaging 175 over the 10 most recent full practice tests. I scored a 171. For this cycle, I studied four months doing one practice section a day and a full test, five sections or six toward the end to build endurance. Mm. I averaged 177 over the 10 most recent full exams, took the test, scored a 171. Toward the beginning, the focus of my weekly study, excluding full exams, was 70% logic games, 20% reading comp, and 10% LR. As I improved in logic games, I leaned more heavily into reading comp, with 50% games, 50% reading comp. I consistently scored minus one to minus zero on LR, so I did not spend as much time worrying about it. Here are my questions. Is it possible that my maximum score is a 171? No. (laughs) You've scored higher than that. You've scored higher than that regularly. I'm thinking 20 tests here with 176 as an average. Now, to be clear, the the average, when Avery was averaging a 177 over the 10 most recent full exams, it sounds like she's repeating the 10 exams that she had oh, studied oh. for earlier. So those scores are going to be a little skewed. But yeah, I mean, you've done it before, averaging a 175. You've Your maximum score is whatever you've done before, potentially more. Yeah, it's just people give unnecessary weight to their official on record scores. Yeah. Whether you take it in a classroom around a bunch of people who are all sweating or at home after it's been released to the public makes no difference as long as you time yourself and don't cheat. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, I guess there's that people cheating, giving themselves <laughs> extra well, points. I don't, I mean, I think there can be something to sort of pausing after each section as opposed to just moving on, kind of like not taking a break. Um, small things like that, or sometimes people will, I'll hear them and they'll say, oh, well, the timer rang and then I, I finished bubbling in my section. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you can't do that on test day. So yeah, why you but you don't let people now? do that when you proctor them, right? No, no. I'm just thinking that sometimes people might do that if they're home. self if they're self self studying without any proctor yeah. at all. I guess, yeah. You just have to be you have to be a, be more serious. You have to take it. I guess it's human nature to cheat, but like just fudge a little when you yeah. weigh yourself in the morning. Do you like have your toe like sitting on your toes like off the scale on the ground? <laughs> Like, I don't weigh myself. <laughs> or like, do you hang on to the like shower, hang on to the the towel rack? <laughs> look, look, it's going down. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to do these practice tests. Why don't you do them for real? I don't get it. Um, hmm. I don't think it's possible that your maximum score is a 171, Avery. In fact, yeah, your your practice test scores say exactly the opposite of that. Uh, She continues, I know I have averaged far above that for a while, but my two data points indicate that my practice test scores simply do not predict my actual performance. (sighs) I know it is likely that I am extrapolating, but do you see students far underperform twice and then raise their score on the third attempt? Yes. Over and over and over again. It's just two data points, just two practice tests. You can go back and find two practice tests in which you scored below a 171, even while you were averaging a 175, I bet. Or maybe not, but at some point you scored below that, and it just happens sometimes. Yeah, no, it's, not no, a big it's, deal. it's almost certain. I mean, <clears throat> unlucky things happen. It's, it's, that's, uh, I feel like school does a bad job of teaching people about data. Well, teaching people about data, yeah, I agree. And also teaching people just about failure, right? Hmm. Like the only way to get an A in a class is to never make a mistake. What kind what kind of lesson is that? Oh, well, you got some things wrong, so you know, frowny face as opposed to, oh, heck, you tried some things out and you messed up and now you can learn from them. Yeah, we see this all the time, Avery. People definitely do underperform and then raise their score on a third attempt or fourth attempt or fifth attempt. I mean, to be honest, I would never give up if I were you, Avery. I would I, yeah. I would keep taking the actual test until I got like at least a 175, I think. I was going to say a 174. Okay. One of those. <laughs> at that point, though, it doesn't matter. You're already doing very well, so but you can do better. Yeah, those two 175s on record are never. Or, sorry, the two 171s on record are never ever going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And if you take it again, it's far more likely that you're going to score a 175 than a 168. So just take it again, and then again. 
Uh, let's see. Is there anything I should do besides keep chugging along, taking a section a day? I would keep doing that, but make sure that as you're taking those sections, you're not letting yourself look up the correct answer for mm-hmm. questions that you are unsure about. Because unlike a lot of people who get a lot of questions wrong, so they probably just should look up the right look up the right answers and figure out which ones they messed up and go after those. You're getting almost nothing wrong. So if there's any questions at the end of the section that you were unsure about, go back and put your feet up and think about them until you know which answer is right and which answer is wrong. If you can figure that out on your own before you look up to see whether that question is right or wrong, uh, you'll get a lot more out of it. And eventually that stuff will start to happen even more for those hard yep. ones on your own during yep. the time. Here, here maybe is a, the, we get to the end of this email and Avery says, I have considered tutoring, but I do not have any specific questions or specific problem areas that I can immediately draw to mind. The devil's in the details. Yeah. At this point. Well. So I guess what I'm saying is it feels to me like she's not recognizing the mistakes or problems that she has when she gets questions wrong or not trying to figure that out enough. Like, wait, okay, here I see why answer choice B is correct now and I see why D is wrong now, but why why did I get tempted to choose this wrong answer? Was it something about my approach? Was it something about my speed? What what was it that led me to choose the wrong answer? Did I misidentify the question type or think that the strategy for this question type was something different than what it actually is? Um, anytime you get a question wrong, that's something that you can learn about yourself. And so that's a problem area, no matter how small it is. Yeah. It, that th- That sentence made me just think a little bit that Avery is not being quite honest with herself when she reviews her mistakes. I mean, she's to get a 175, you missed five questions. Well, why did you miss those five? Yeah. And to get a 171, I mean, on her official tests, if they were released, well, she took the February test, but she, before that she had taken a different one, mm-hmm. a released one, I assume. And which ones did you miss? Why did you miss those ones? Are you sure you understand? Or do you just look at it, look at the answer key and go, oh yeah. Oh. Sure, yeah, I see why it's D. <laughs> and then just go and then go on to another test. Yeah. Um she says, it seems like my mistakes are evenly distributed across problem type. And asks whether tutoring can still be helpful for someone in this situation. So this is actually a pretty common, common comment. Yeah. People will, they'll look at the questions that they're getting wrong and they'll say, Hey, I got two flaw questions wrong. I got a weakened question wrong. Yep. I got a roll question wrong. And so it's just all over the place. I guess I don't have a particular weakness. I just, just, it's just kind of random and they mm. kind of throw up their hands, but it's like, look, first of all, um, there is one fundamental skill that is true for every single question type, and that is trying to figure out what must be true given what was said. That might sound strange for like a flaw question, but it's still true in a flaw question because in a flaw question, what's happening is they're giving you premises and you're, and then they're drawing a conclusion on the basis of those premises, and that conclusion is not supported. 
In other words, you're trying to figure out what must be true given what was said in the premises and how is that different from what was said in the conclusion. And so at its core, the LSAT is constantly giving you facts, whether that's in the games or reading comp or logical reasoning, and asking you to figure out what must be true on the basis of that. And then they can ask you whether you get it, whether you know what must be true given what was said in a variety of different ways. They can say, hey, how is that argument flawed? They can say what must be true. They can say what can't be true. But the point is is that although there are different question types and slightly different strategies that you could implement at its core, you really have to know how to read what was said and deduce what must be true given what was said. And so there's not a lot of differences between these question types at its core, and you need to figure out why you're not doing that in each of those questions that you get wrong. Yeah, I, Avery is specifically asking whether tutoring can be helpful for someone in her situation. And I would go so far as to say Avery is the ideal, yeah. perfect candidate for one-on-one private tutoring. I think yeah. I think she is exactly the type of person that needs private tutoring because she needs somebody who's going to beat her up a little bit. I think like she needs she needs somebody who's going to sit there with her and look at a mistake she made and demand to know mm-hmm. exactly why she made that mistake. Avery, why did you pick that answer? Why didn't you pick this other answer? Before we even start looking at the answer choices. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what the argument said? Yeah. What's the problem with that? When you read this question, what are you thinking? Did you make a prediction? Did the answer you picked match your prediction? What's going on here? And so I, I think that's exactly what one-on-one tutoring does is goes deep with somebody into, you know, it, it could just be like if Avery showed up with two tests that she had done recently mm-hmm. and maybe that's a total of, 10 mistakes. If she's scoring 175, that could be a total of 10 mistakes, 10 or 12 mistakes. But in a two hour session, I would go into deeply into those, each of those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I just wouldn't be, I would not letting her get away with, Oh, I misread that one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wait, really? Is that really what you did? Cause I mean, okay, if that's what you did, then the answer is clear. You need to be more careful. But is that really what you did or is there actually something here that you don't really understand and you're not, she's not having the um, self knowledge to, to just even understand what type of a mistake she's actually yeah. making there. No, it, it's uh, exactly right. Someone who's scoring in this range will often have all the lingo down too. So they can say things like, Oh, this, this seems to be like, this argument seems to be confusing a necessary condition with a sufficient condition. And you say, okay, great. Yeah, you, you're recognizing that. That's good. Where specifically is that happening? Did you recognize that when you read the argument? Which necessary condition are they referring to? And when you start digging into those questions, sometimes people answer them spot on, but a lot of times it's kind of hazy. And it's that haze that you have to clear up to avoid making any mistakes like that again in the future. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I wouldn't be looking to do tutoring with Avery every, you know, not, not, I don't think a ton, but I would love to do one meeting. Yeah. 
And I think you feel the same way that, you know, you, this is the type of person who we might be able to get on a better path very Mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's what I would recommend for some, if you're in Avery's boat, I mean, do one session and then reevaluate from there. Mm -hmm. Um, cool. We have anything else for Avery? No. Good luck. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. Good luck. Um, I wanted to, I forgot, we should have talked about this at the top of the show, Ben, but we put out a sort of feeler for um, possibly taking our show on the road. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. We got a couple feelers from people in various places. The one that seemed most promising was New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a few preliminary emails going around about possibly doing a class in New York city, a weekend class in New York city before the June exam this year. Yeah. Um, we need help uh, putting that together. That means you need to tell us that you want it basically. <laughs> um, we can pick out a weekend. I don't know, Ben, if you looked at the two weekends that I proposed by email, Yeah, but we can, we can talk about the details later, but it would be a weekend in late May or potentially early June like right before the June exam mm-hmm. where we would uh, meet up in New York city and have a class taught together uh, with, with both of us, me yeah. and Ben. Yeah. Um, but we need a, you know, sufficient group and we need, we need some enthusiasm <laughs> from our listeners yeah. to, uh, to help us to get motivated to actually put this together. We would both love to do it. Um, but we just need to know that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, sort of fill a class. Yeah. So talk to your buddies uh, who listen to the show. I, I got an email earlier today from somebody in Maine asking if, you know, I was coming to New England and the odds of me going to New England, especially by myself to teach a class are low, but the odds of me going to New York city with Ben potentially to teach a class are uh, much higher. Mm -hmm. And I think New England people would probably be able to take a quick trip down to New York city. So um, anyway, we're looking at that. We need to, when you hear this, I guess it'll be um, Tuesday, April 24th when this, uh, when this show is released and we need to know like by the end of April, we need to have this thing like on the calendar. Mm-hmm. So you have your marching orders listeners. If you're interested in this at all, uh, please hit us up immediately. Uh, help at thinking and tell us that you think uh, we could get some enthusiasm for a class in New York before yeah. this June exam. Of course, we can always do it later for the July exam or for the September exam. Yeah. But um, hey, why not do it sooner rather than later if we can pull it off? Yeah. Okay. You want to do this next email? Sure. We, we have two emails here, by the way, about the Akam Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be maybe preferable to kind of get through both of these emails and then our comments. Sure. So maybe we'll try that. You read one and I'll try to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> yeah, generally. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Subject. The coming apocalypse. This is referring to the disaster that awaits us for accommodations. Nathan and Ben, thank you for your extended discussion on testing accommodations during episode 131. 
You may recall that I wrote you previously on the subject after your interview with Dr. Maloff in episode 109. Original email below. Okay, thank you. At the time, I thought the subject was ripe for some snarky humor, hence my jokes about about the accommodations mill, ADHD, lawyers losing cases, and concerns about surgeons who may have been accommodated for the MCAT. Okay. Unfortunately, after listening to your discussion in episode 131, it increasingly appears the LSAT is headed for a apocalypse. Consider the following points. 1. The LSAT, probably more than any other grad school standardized test, becomes far easier when given 50% more time, likely because of no dedicated math section or need-to-know facts, vocabulary, core subject matter, etc. Okay. Um, well, I don't know how it compares to other tests, but I do know that it definitely becomes easier when you get 50% more time, hands down, for sure. Two, because the LSAT was designed to test the ability to read, analyze, and draw conclusions from dense and confusing material in stressful circumstances, i.e. the time limits, 50% more time changes the test entirely. For example, I scored a 160 on my first cold diagnostic in March of 2017. I studied for one to two hours per day, five to six days per week for six months, and focused whoa, and focused on time sections and thoroughly reviewing my mistakes. By early, so you put in some serious study time, is what that all adds up to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Long studying. By early September, my practice test range was 164 to 176, with a 169 average. Okay. I officially scored 170 on the September LSAT, which puts me in in an elite group of test takers. (laughs) Sorry. Um, But admittedly not in the super elite 174 plus group. Yeah. Okay. So I was just laughing because it's kind of funny to refer to yourself as in Call yourself elite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not disagreeing. (laughs) Just anyways. I had never previously completed an untimed section. However, after listening to episode 131, I decided to take a practice test with 50% more time. Cool. Experiment. I made a silly mistake on just one LR question and scored a remarkably stress-free 180. (laughs) Not surprising at all that someone who scores a 170. And that was right in line with his uh, practice test scores. Yeah. Average one. Yeah, 169 average, Mm -hmm. scores a 170 on the actual, but then, yeah, gives himself time and a half and scores 180, Mm -hmm. like, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Not not surprising. Not surprising at all. So what if there's some reason he could have come up with to get that accommodation? He He would be part of the super elite group. He would. Okay, point number three. With 50% more time, the RC and LG sections are a joke because the answers are literally... Included in the question setup. Mm. I don't know if they're literally included. Time is only the only barrier to finding the answers. Make no mistake. An increasing number of ruthless, aspiring future lawyers are learning that getting 50% more time is not that hard to do. True. <laughs> ben read it like that because it was bold. That yeah. sentence was bold. That was Ben's bold voice. <laughs> I didn't realize I had one, but now I know. <laughs> yeah. As more good test takers join the time and a half club, the scoring scale will become meaningless because too many people will enter the upper tiers. The Akamapocalypse. 
As elite law schools have too many high-scoring applicants to choose from and no way to know which applicants received 50% more time because the LSAC is legally forbidden from disclosing uh, your accommodation status, schools will likely abandon the LSAT as a reliable way to sort applicants. Whoa, that's a pretty large leap for yeah. a 170 score. Make no mistake here either. Law schools know a time and a half 170 is not as predictive of law school success as a standard time 170. Yeah, I'm sure they know that, but they won't know which ones are time and a half. Um, well, that's why Greg says they're just going to abandon the LSAT entirely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so last time we talked about this, right? What was it? It was like 6% of people are getting accommodations or three. I can't remember now. Yeah. Well, we have more data in the second email. We're going to have all kinds of data. Okay. So this is Greg. Greg is painting a very dark picture here with pure speculation, which is something that I myself enjoy doing. <laughs> so, oh, I thought we were going to say we never do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you are less less apt to do it than I am. But uh, Greg is Greg. Greg is sounding like me here. But anyway, um, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't know. It's still kind of a big leap. Abandon the LSAT. The problem is you have to have a reliable or some means yeah. of an alternative, and I don't yeah. see that. But anyways. Yeah. Going forward, elite law school admissions committees will likely find other ways to judge applicants than a LSAT GPA index. Okay, Greg, I need support here. Things like the competitiveness rank of the undergraduate institution attended, the rigor of the courses majors taken, challenging interviews, or even requiring a portfolio of work examples, papers, projects, tests, like the way top schools evaluate applicants for architecture, music, art, and art will be better predictors of success than LSATs taken with time and a half. Dude, Greg, you just got to stop for a half second. You're telling me that law schools are going to exchange a single number, or two numbers in this case, GPA and LSAT, for the opportunity to require a portfolio of work examples, papers, projects, <laughs> tests. There's just no way, there's no way in hell that they're going to do that. What they would do instead is they would either push to get to know who got time and a half, restore it how it was, which would be hard because that was a court order, or just say, um, okay, now every time we get a score, we're going to consider it uh, a range of not up or down three points, but up or down five points or up or down six points. So it's less predictive, but it's still 10 times, 100 times easier than this solution. No offense, in my opinion. But I've never done it. So yeah, they have you know hundreds of seats they have to fill every single year. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about hundreds of portfolios of work. Well, or yeah, or hun- hundreds of rigorous interviews. Yeah, in, or th- thousands actually thousands, to yeah. fill hundreds of seats. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I get it. I get it. I think a a more likely scenario would be them just using the GRE. Sure. I, I wonder. What's uh, this the is something we have never exactly. Yeah. Hey, listeners, we need help. <clears throat> what are the accommodations requirements on the GRE? I mean, we could do the research ourselves, but why would we do that when we could just have you guys do it? And there's so, someone out there who knows more about the GRE than either it, one of us. So, Yeah, absolutely. Many people know more about the GRE than we do. So please um, let us know what the deal is with GRE accommodations. Are they giving extra time on the GRE? Is it as easy as it is on the LSAT or is it harder? Let us know. I like I like this last sentence. Thanks again for your great thinking LSAT podcast. M dash. 
while it lasts anyway. Greg, if the LSAT implodes, <laughs> Nathan and I will continue talking. <laughs> Just like we hope you keep we hope you keep listening after you're done with the LSAT. We're gonna continue doing the Thinking LSAT podcast even if there is no LSAT anymore. We could talk about what the LSAT was like. <laughs> We're going to only talk about movies and ice cream and, yeah, the old days of of the LSAT. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Greg, very much. Um, Let's I'll I'll read through this next one and then we'll then we'll talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, guys, if you guys haven't already seen this report, check it out. Seems to support a lot of what you guys talk about on the podcast. Of interest, pages 18 and 19 on the 2012-2017 report. Compare the performance of accommodated test takers with extra time and non-accommodated test takers. As you may expect, the group with extra time performed better than non-accommodated test takers on 90% of the LSAT administrations between June of 2012 and February of 2017, with the gap sometimes being as high as five points. If you compare this to the 2007-2012 version of the report, the groups were nearly identical, but accommodated test takers with extra time still seemed to hold a slight advantage. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So the advantage has changed as the number of accommodated test takers has increased. Sorry. The gap has, there used to be a barely a gap, it sounds like, and now there's a five point gap, which is sorry, as much as high as a five point gap. Yeah. Which is actually what you'd like to see, right? You'd like to see that the accommodated test takers are doing about the same, maybe slightly better than everyone else. That's fine. Uh, there's always variation, but like they're getting accommodations because they need accommodations, not because they can get it. One definition of <clears throat> if if the accommodations are meant to level the playing field, yep, then I think you would want the accommodated group on average to be doing the same as the non-accommodated group. Exactly, that would show that it's working, right? Like, okay, let's only talk about blind people. If we were to give because it's easy to say everybody agrees that we need to accommodate blind people. It's clear. No, no, nobody's going to argue against that. They I can, mean, come at me if you want to argue. <laughs> if you want to argue against that, please send us an email and we'll just rip it to shreds. But, you know, <clears throat> we have to accommodate for certain things, blindness being an obvious one. But if, if we were to do, you know, we give blind people accommodations X, Okay, mm-hmm. black box of accommodations. Sure. We don't know what those accommodations actually are, but black, but uh, blind people are getting this uh, black box accommodations. Sure. Okay. For example, Braille stuff like that, a little extra time. Whatever it is, we don't know yeah. what's in the black box. Okay, Doesn't we're just matter. from the out. We they go into a room, special room. They take the LSAT in there, and we don't know what the accommodations are. But if we looked at the results later, yep, and we saw that blind people were scoring five points higher than non-blind people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then we might start asking some probing questions about what's going on inside the box. Yeah, exactly. Now, it might be that blind people are more talented than non-blind people. Okay, I suppose that's the case. We, that would be one hypothesis. But another hypothesis would be we're, doing too, we're giving too much inside the black box. I was just imagining one of us like in there, you know, talking about the games, chit-chatting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like (laughs) what are these accommodations? Are these accommodations an LSAT expert who's helping you work your way through the questions or not D not D no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you're going to pick that answer. Hmm. Do it. I can't tell you what the answer (laughs) is, but I don't, Hmm. (laughs) 
Yeah. So, okay. So th- that's, you know, thank you for indulging me a little thought experiment, but yeah. if one group is, is outperforming the other group, then it does seem like maybe those accommodations aren't appropriate. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Speaking of social justice warriors, <laughs> this anonymous writer uh, continues. Mm-hmm. Speaking of social justice warriors, I made the mistake of sharing my views on accommodations and the potential for gaming the system with a more lax approval process. A group of would-be law students rained down upon me, accusing me of being bitter because I didn't think I would do well this cycle. Mind you, this was after I received my 175. Whoa. They accused me of wishing to discriminate against disabled test takers and committing the correlation causation fallacy. I guess we can't assume that having more time is a relevant factor as to why this group consistently outperforms their non-accommodated peers. That was a sarcasm there in that last sentence. Yeah. Anyways, you're welcome to show this, uh, share this on the show or not. Just thought you guys might find these reports interesting. If you decide to share, please do not use my name. Best non-accom. Yeah. And then we have links to these two reports. I wonder if we could click on, I would like to kind of look at them. Sure. This is very interesting. This is, you know, June 2012 to February 2017, an official LSAC report. These are big, big reports. Are you looking? I am not. I'm waiting for your wisdom. Oh, 27 pages. Let's just start reading. Yeah, why not? The number of approved accommodation requests increased across the five testing years from 729 in 2012 to 2013 to 3,000 in 2016 to 2017. Hmm. That's approved. There. Oh, it says that they approved 40... In the first two study years, the learning disorder category comprised the largest number of test takers. The attention deficit slash hyperactivity disorder category overwhelmingly comprised the largest number of test takers in the last three years of the study. So a lot of these new accommodated testers are getting accommodated for ADD, ADHD. ADHD, yeah. Hmm. Most accommodated test takers... 92% use the standard test booklet rather than the large print or Braille test booklet format. So, yeah, I mean, we're not arguing at all about these 8% of people who are using large print and Braille and stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's not what most people are getting accommodated for. The most common accommodations approved were extra test time and extra rest. Look Look at these demographic trends. I don't know what to make of them, but... This last line, though, note that under the terms of the consent decree, time and a half became the minimum extra test time accommodation beginning in December 2015. What? That was in the consent decree. What do these judges think? What judge approved that? That's just, (laughs) whoa, that's amazing. I'm a judge, but I'm also a a standardized test expert. (laughs) Why the hell would time and a half be, be the minimum accommodation? Five minutes makes a difference. Five minutes makes a huge difference. Huh. There are many students who would always get four or five more points on the logic games if you gave them five more minutes. Yeah. 
Or in reading comp, they've read the passage, they've answered the first question, five more minutes, they can finish the passage. <laughs> On LR, it's probably more like two questions, but <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, okay, yeah, so demographic trends. More male than female accommodated test takers in the current report years, uh, whereas it used to be more females than males. Interesting. Well, no, it's just saying there were more female than male non-accommodated. Oh, non-accommodated. Te- oh, in the same study period. Right. So even though there's more females than males taking the test, because there's more females than males in law school, yeah, there's more males getting accommodated. Oh, shocking. Shocking. Uh, privileged people <laughs> taking advantage of the system. Okay. Uh, oh, African-American and Asian accommodated test takers were underrepresented. And Caucasian slash white accommodated test takers were overrepresented compared to their representation in the non-accommodated groups. Hmm. There was a greater proportion of older accommodated test takers than is typically observed in the non-accommodated group. Yeah. I think the the most interesting thing is the fact that the the split or the I guess the performance between the accommodated test takers and the non-accommodated test takers has changed since the consent decree that's and it's gone up and it's higher this is the whole going back to the level the playing field thing it just shows that it's not leveling the playing field it's tilting it in the favor of those who are getting accommodations particularly because now the 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 most the smallest accommodation they can give you is an extra 18 minutes that's crazy (laughs) Boy, if I could make one change, I, I just think I would say time and a half is too much generally. Yeah. And and as a minimum, it's just unconscionable. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. That makes no sense. It almost should that, be the maximum. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what some people's learning differences or whatnot would require them more than time and a half, but that is a really long time. Yeah, well, so then look at this. Accommodated with extra time test takers had higher LSAT scores in 18 of the 20 test administrations in the study. But there's another accommodation group. Those are accommodated students who take the test with standard time. Yeah. And so those get accommodations such as a computer for the writing sample, which has no effect on your score. Mm -hmm. They have food... They can sit and stand and other things. They're only scoring higher than the non-accommodated group in 12 of the 20 test administrations. Yeah. And if you're thinking that's unfair, it's actually about right. You'd expect it to be higher in about 10 of them and then lower in about 10 of them. Right. So 12 out of 20 test administrations is whatever. That's not, that's nothing. That's close enough. Yeah. But 18 out of 20 ain't close enough. 18 out of 20 is dominating. Yeah. So, other types of accommodations like sit and stand, computer, food, all those very sensible, normal, reasonable things mm-hmm. aren't creating a performance gap. Yep. Extra time is creating a performance gap. Hmm. Shocker. I mean, wow, I never would have. Oh, boy. So that's all in the um, like prologue to this thing because now I get to the introduction. Yeah. And then we get to a just long ass, whoa, the data total sample used in the study is 513,000 people of those 505,000 are non-accommodated test takers 
5,700 of them are accommodated test takers who earned an LSAT score. Oh, and then there were 2,000 people who were approved for accommodations but didn't actually take the test. Okay, so those, whatever, those don't count. So here are the total sample. It's only like 1% accommodated. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Ooh, now we get into uh, get into some sample data here. So there's data, a lot of data available, boy, on just you know breakdown, gender breakdown, who's taking the test generally, who's taking the test in all these different race and ethnicity buckets. Mm-hmm. Whoa, here's a whole list of disability categories. ADHD, hearing impairment, learning disorder, neurological impairment, physical disability, psychological disability, visual impairment, or other slash medical. Yeah, and in you- the psychological disability area. Mm-hmm. We see any diagnosed psychological condition, including depression, bipolar disorder, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social phobia, specific phobias, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I wonder what the solution is to those disorders. More time? Well, right. So for like the social phobia or whatever, I imagine they might just be like, oh, well, we can give you a private room. Yeah, you'd hope. That'd be the non-extra time. <laughs> but if you go in there with generalized anxiety disorder or a specific, or, or post-traumatic stress disorder or OCD mm-hmm. or depression or panic or any of these things, Dr. Malov recommends that you get extra time on the test to deal with these issues. And when Dr. Malov recommends that, you get approved every time. Yeah, and you and you have to get a minimum time and a half. It's like if and, you go down right. the time <laughs> pathway. Yeah. Well, that's how people are going to be gaming the system, is they're going to be requesting extra time. Yeah. And the fact that there's a minimum on the extra time, that's just shocking to me. I wonder, like depression... Um, Whoa. That's a... That's a serious challenge, but I'm trying to, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just trying to understand how time, extra time would help you with that. I guess you get distracted while you're taking the test or something. I I don't get it. (laughs) Of course. It takes me a while to, I, I, I start beating myself up. I have this voice in my head that just keeps, you know, or whatever. I'm not talking about schizophrenia or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I have these negative thoughts and they, they become overwhelming and I can't stop thinking about them. And it just takes me time to get myself back under control. And then as soon as I get myself back under control, then it's easy for, and then I can all, I can always answer these questions, but you see, sometimes I'm just not at my best. Mm-hmm. So I need extra time so that I can be at my best. Mm-hmm. I think you make that case. It's like, <laughs> I want to take one of my students as a test case and write them an accommodation request Mm -hmm. and just see if they like someone who clearly does not need it. (laughs) Like I want to pick out the highest score in my class right now Yeah, and see if I can write it and see if I can get them accommodated. Yeah. Now they would have to, it's just all you need is that you ever were prescribed an antidepressant, Mm -hmm. which by the way, what percentage of the population has at some point been prescribed an antidepressant? Sure. A lot. (laughs) That's a big, big number. Or an anti-anxiety thing or, fuck, I have Xanax right now because my dentist gave it to me 
because I was like, dude, I hate the dentist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, here to have Xanax. Yeah. Well, okay. That I, I believe I, I would be willing to bet that I could get, I could get accommodated. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Well, if I can get accommodated, <laughs> it seems like everybody should get accommodated, right? Well, I mean, you got a 179. There's still room for improvement. <laughs> I wasn't at my best, you see, because of my anxiety. I don't know. I think that was your maximum potential score. <laughs> wow. This is a this is a fucking mess. I don't know. I don't know what's up. I I would love to know whether this is the same thing happening with the with the GRE. Yeah. They probably haven't been sued, maybe. Look at this bar chart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Are you on 11? Page 11? Uh, I am on page 9. Oh, yeah. I see a colorful bar chart. Go down to 11, dude. It shows the rise of extra time and the, the fall of other accommodation requests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, we'll we'll uh, link this to the show notes for you guys. For those wait you till curious. you see the twenty the twenty seventeen twenty eighteen version of this. Oh my god! Wait till yeah. we, it's going to be outrageous. It's like one of those curves that goes up and it starts curving upward even faster. You know what they call that? Exponential growth. Yeah, <laughs> that is. We're going nonlinear. Maybe maybe Greg is right. The end is nigh. <laughs> I mean, dude, if this is the same. Okay, someone also needs to hurry up and sue the GRE. They'd better the GRE better be giving the same ADA accommodations. Otherwise, this deal like I have to say, I feel like the LSAT is getting getting shafted here. Sure, yeah, they got they got screwed on that. Who did they hire as their lawyer? Did they think, oh, we're all lawyers, we can defend ourselves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, brutal. Just brutal. Yeah, I was I was looking at the page nine mm. to see the gigantic spike in oh ADHD. The bulk of these requests has come from ADHD. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Learning disorder has also spiked a lot. Oh, actually, the biggest in percentage terms is that weird psychological category. That, that catch all. You- I, I have a feeling that is where the there's going to be gigantic growth because I don't know why everybody wouldn't just get accommodated for anxiety and depression sure who doesn't have anxiety in preparing for this test (laughs) at some point i think you i think you literally i think almost everyone in the world could get accommodated for anxiety and depression i I think if you go into the doctor well yeah i mean it's just very easy to get prescribed an antidepressant Mm -hmm. that's 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 it's over prescribed, right? I mean, I, I don't, or maybe it's not, I don't know, <laughs> but it's prescribed a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've, you've been feeling sad a lot lately. Well, why don't you try this? Mm-hmm. We have a drug for that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You can just pay, um, whatever the drug company is for, you know, a little bit of money for the rest of your life. Actually, well, you probably, your insurance company will cover it. Yeah. You get a $10 copay here, try this. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that is like rampant. And by the way, that's something that just a medical doctor can prescribe all the time. You don't even need any psychological evaluation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like I said, my doctor, my dentist prescribed me anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. Which would put me into the psychological bucket. Now, of course, I would have to 
And by the way, I don't even think you have to go to the, you know, expensive Dr. Malov's of the world. Although I know for sure that, you know, well, he has said he never has lost a case when he has recommended accommodations. He always wins. Hmm. But lately, I don't know what you've been hearing from your students, but I haven't been hearing students say that they got rejected. Yeah, I, I don't think I have actually. I don't think I've heard anyone say they've gotten rejected. I've heard people say they're not trying to apply because they're worried that they would get it rejected by just say, hey, like, give it a shot. There's no downside except for your time and a little bit of money, depending on what you have to do. But I, I'm struggling to think of a certain of a single student that I know that got rejected. Hmm. Which is so funny because that's exactly the opposite of what it was before, right? Pretty much I told everyone, well, you're probably not going to get it. So you can, yeah. you can waste your time with that or you could get your, <laughs> get, get your, your mind focused on studying, right? Yeah, even though, I mean, I, I do remember like visually, people with visual impairments getting accommodated. Sure, sure, yeah. Even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there was that much of a problem there with, with things like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, oh boy, do we need to do a disclaimer <laughs> We we're not doctors and we don't know. Uh, it is very possible that there are real reasons for people with ADHD and all of these psychological uh, differences mm-hmm. and le- and learning differences. We don't know. We don't know. I don't know shit about any of this. Yeah. But what I do know is that lawyers will go for every advantage, and I also know that you could easily under this system get accommodated with really very thin evidence. I mean, it's just not going to be hard. And if you ask for extra time, they, if they accommodate you, they're going to have to give you at least time and a half. Yeah. It just seems outrageous. So this is, this system is going completely off the rails. I think Greg's right. Dude. So the last page of this report has a diagram of, what it's like two bell curves and one of them is what happens the score difference between your first accommodated test and your second accommodated test and that bell curve hovers over about two so it's saying that if you take a test with accommodations and then you take another test with accommodations your score is going to go up about two points at least according to the bell curve that's most people go up about two points. Some people go up a lot more. Okay. Some people go down. Well, some people go down. Some people go up. Yeah, but, but the bell yeah, curve a, hovers a, a around normal curve two points, which is what we've heard in the past, right? Like the average retaker ends up going up about two points. Is that really hovering around two points? It looks maybe a, a click higher than that, but no, yeah, it's kind of a. There's a broad peak there between one and. It looks to me like. Six or seven. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at the We're middle. looking at the blue the, line, right? Yeah, the middle of that blue line. I was just... Okay. But um, then there's this other line, another bell curve, which is going from <laughs> yeah. non-accommodations. So you go take the test without accommodations, and then you take the test again with accommodations. Well, that number hovers around, it looks like eight, seven, eight, nine. Nine. Yeah. So... There's a nine-point change if you go from getting no accommodations to getting accommodations. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's not surprising, but it's just uh, one more piece of data that confirms that there's a huge benefit to getting extra time. Well, 
Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, I guess we would want accommodations to be effective. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that I think many people don't understand is how valuable those are, <laughs> that nine points, if you had to put a dollar figure on it, mm-hmm. what's it? Nine points. <laughs> gosh, dollar figure. I mean, that's, that's full ride versus not full ride, full, full, fr- full freight versus full ride. That's the difference right there. Okay. So it's, it's a, that's 40, hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. Well, just intuition, it's $150,000. Well, I would, yeah. And I'm just thinking with the, the time it takes you to pay it back, you're effectively going to be paying about 300000 my guess is. Oh, more than that if you go into income based repayment and like never pay off the loans. Yeah. Then it could be a million dollars. Yeah. Um, not to mention different career opportunities that you might get. Yeah. And how much money you earn versus <laughs> how much you would have earned. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So bottom line, get accommodations, figure out a way, um, <laughs> do whatever you can. We need to be, uh, we need to make some money, Ben, like right now and we need to save it. Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> because if Greg, <laughs> all this is adding up to Greg just could easily be right. Uh, that our whole industry is going to collapse. Yeah, I still think there there'd be a re- reaction though. I think that people would push back on these accommodations before letting go of the LSAT and its convenience. Yeah. Do you think we I mean, you know, I I, I don't I don't think I'm actually going to help a student. I don't know, that would be a pretty damn good test case though, wouldn't it? To help them get accommodations. Well, yeah, and and sort of do it publicly, like like just take my highest performing student who has one time been accommodated for um who who has who has uh you know I got somebody in my class who's scoring one seventy two, but I go hey who here has ever taken an antidepressant and like everyone in the room raises their hand and then get take that one seventy two who like one time had anxiety or depression and fill out a, an accommodations request and see if I can get him or her accommodated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just to make the whole thing public, like as an expose. Sure. You know, and Nathan Fox. <laughs> well, it's not about me. It's a, no, it's about, it's just about like, Hey, look how to just to, I, I would like to see what the process looks like. You know, I'd like to see what the paperwork looks like. Sure. Because I know students who have written their own, like they, they, they got, their doctor to write a thing. Mm-hmm. And then they filled out their own case mm. for, Hey, here's why I need these accommodations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and got approved like immediately. Yeah. So no, I'm, I'm actually not talking about my writing ability I or whatever. I just, I, oh, well, no, I thought you were saying you were just going to say, Hey, let me write you up this thing. I was confused. Yeah, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, <laughs> can we take a student who doesn't want accommodations, Yeah. who has no legitimate need for accommodations and get them accommodated just as a, just to demonstrate the, ease. the potential that this system can be fucked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. It, hey, all you out there listening, if you're, uh, if you're passionate about this issue, um, yeah, you could you could fill out you could you could try for these accommodations. I mean, and if you 
need them. I hope you get them. Yeah. But I just hope that there aren't a million people out there just striving for every advantage. And I know lawyers. I I know how lawyers are. (laughs) They're not unlikely to try to game the system. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because we're talking about so goddamn much money. And it's legal, right? That's the whole point is that you say you're gaming the system, but you're, you're following the law to the letter, regardless of whether it's to the spirit of the law. Well, yeah, which is the most annoying characteristic of lawyers, right? Yep. It's like, oh, well, hey, well, all I'm doing here is following the law. That's what it says. It's clearly not what it means, but that's what it says. Yeah. And so I'm making my case. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, that's what the courts are for. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It's not what the courts are really supposed to be for, but uh, that's what lawyers do is they take every possible advantage Mm -hmm. of these. Oh God. All right. Well, we should stop. We're going to, we're going to depress everybody. You got to go anyway, don't you? Yep. All this stuff will be in the show notes, uh, links to these two reports. We'd love to hear what you think. Please email us help at thinking com. Um, before you yell at us about being elitists or trying to discriminate against dis- disabled people, I, Ben and I are each um, fairly progressive folks <laughs> politically, and we want things to be fair and just in the world. So we are complaining about the injustice of this system because we think that it can be gamed. Yeah, that's all. Um, help at thinkingelset.com to let us know about what. Uh, what you liked and what you didn't like about the show. And if you have any information about how the GRE deals with this issue, we would love to know about that. We'd also love to hear your personal accommodation stories. If you did apply for accommodations and get approved, we would like to know about that. If you applied and didn't get approved, we'd like to know about that too. We're not really hearing very many stories from people who, who get shut down these days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that was episode... 136 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. It's been nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.